Uh, did you initially decide to get tattooing because you believed it was the evolutionary endpoint of people from Essex? Yeah, it's in my DNA, Thomas. Yeah, you know, it's like you... deeply etched in in my DNA. Yeah, my if jeans the... told me to do it. Yeah, you were the fifth lad for the four lads in jeans. They forgot to put your statue in, though. <laughs> oh no, I'm like, um, I'm, I'm taking the Jordan Peterson approach, right? I saw the tattoo in the kind of cosmic symbology and decided to connect myself with the spiritual um, map of meaning. Mm-hmm. And, and you, it's very complicated. You wouldn't understand. No, definitely not, because I don't have a PhD. And you, you know, used your uh, <laughs> wonderful insight to pursue a PhD and fulfill the end point of everyone taking a mild interest into an obsession. And then, thank God you didn't create a lot of shit science around it, like some of the stuff we're going to talk about today. You're very welcome to Beneath Skin, the show about the history of everything told through the history of tattooing. I'm one of your hosts, Tom Somani, and I am joined by my wonderful co-host, Dr. Matt Lauder. And we have another expert another phd haver on the episode as well matt would you like to introduce our guest and what we're talking about yeah well, i'm really really pleased to welcome to the show uh, dr cat ford um who currently is working as a teaching fellow at or teaching associate at the university of aston in birmingham uh, got a phd from uh brunel university somewhere where i nearly went actually um, and they offered me funding, so I quit my job, moved to Uxbridge, and then the day before term started, they told me they didn't have any funding after all. I had to go and beg for my job back. Yeah, no. that was like, yeah, that was like, that was like, uh, yeah, 10, 15 years ago. No, yeah, probably like two, 2005. <laughs> so yeah, that was fun. That, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound like a gut punch at all. Yeah, that was that was that was my sort of intro to academia. That, um, but yeah. So, Kat, I mean, I, I guess, like, do you want to introduce yourself as well and like talk about uh, what it is you do? I mean, I first encountered you um, on the Merseyside Skeptics uh, podcast, Skeptics with a K, um, who who uh, we love, um, and yeah, I, I just love to know, yeah, what who you are and what you're doing, and and uh, how you got to what you're doing right now. Um, so I'm Kat. Um, I, um, what am I is a really great question because I'm not <laughs> entirely sure how to answer that question anymore. Um, for the longest time, I would have been very, very happy to introduce myself to people and say, I'm an evolutionary psychologist. Um, now I kind of err more towards um, evolutionary behavioral scientist. And one, it just helps me sidestep a lot of the negative perceptions people have immediately of somebody who says evolutionary psychology. Um, But it does, to some extent, also reflect um, changes in my approach, I guess. Because depending on who you are, what you mean by evolutionary psychology can mean slightly different things. And there is more than one school of evolutionary psychology. Um, One of the most famous is probably the Santa Barbara School of Evolutionary Psychology. And they, that sort of approach very much tends to think about brains like a Swiss army knife of you've got all these kind of adaptations that are already there, fully loaded, and 
they come into play at the right time and come offline when they're not needed. Um, I think possibly for some things that probably works, but I don't think that is the totality of explaining human behavior because it's much more complicated than that. And there's interesting (laughs) things. (laughs) And there's interesting things that you can learn through um, sort of a more sort of behavioral ecology approach. Or, yeah. um, and I think cultural evolution um, is a really fascinating area that can tell us like, a, a lot about surprisingly complicated, be- like, or not surprisingly complicated behaviours, but it can, be re- it can be a really insightful approach. And I think ultimately, the thing that drives me towards this kind of area is a kind of... <laughs> Like it sounds like a real cop out because it's it's a point that you can't really We're argue academics. with we, too much. We feel on cop outs. It's okay, <laughs> right? So, like, I think that like the the sort of the thing that most people would probably quite happily agree with is that um, humans are animals. We evolved. We have brains. A brain is just an organ, and that is going to have been shaped by natural selection. Yeah, that's, that's the kind of like that's, cool that's the. Um, <laughs> That's the very basic kind of Mott and Bailey, the, the Bailey, well, I can't remember which way around it goes, but that's the kind of like truism at the heart of all of this stuff, right? The kind of undeniable bit of it. Yeah. But then it's a question of like, okay, well, how, how do we figure out which <laughs> behaviours are kind of born out of some sort of evolutionary history? Um, and how much does knowing that tell, how much can that actually tell us about humans? And what they do, and how often is that actually useful as an explanation? Yeah. Um, my answer to that is <laughs> always, eventually. <laughs> 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 but it might, like, so sometimes the explanation will just simply be because human brains are really good at learning because learning is useful. <laughs> right. And yeah. There you go. Yeah. I guess the kind of the kind of version that that gets a bad name uh, or has gotten a bad name is the version that is the kind of um uh you know the, the, of of the sort of Jordan Peterson kind actually which is you know women wear red lipstick because men evolved to like collect red berries on the savanna and therefore they're attracted to finding berries like that's the kind of like stereotypical form of that very kind of problematic form of evolutionary psychology right is that would that be a fair characterization yeah i've actually been at a conference where somebody had a poster of a similar idea um and uh, i wish i could remember the details of it because <laughs> so th- one hypothesis is that um lipstick is used because your lips and your labia if you have them tend to blush in the same way at the same time. And so by wearing red lipstick, you're making people think about sexual arousal because, oh, her face lips are red, her downstairs lips must be red too. Somebody had tried to investigate this. And so as part of their research, they had just watched loads of porn (laughs) to see if there was any sort of relationship between like upstairs and downstairs lip coloration during sexual arousal and they found no (laughs) turns out 
<laughs> Good omen for trying. Because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, for, as a as a broadly a, a cultural historian, you know, and this is what we'll get into when we talk about tattooing. I'm sort of interested in just how the the really kind of hard versions of that methodology are completely acultural, right? They kind of seek, and, and I guess there are different versions of it which which come at it from um, bottom up and top down, but like ultimately they seek to kind of find ways to explain culture through what looks to me like a naturalistic fallacy or a naturalistic overdetermination at the very least, right? To sort of say culture is like it is because it had to be because science, you know? <laughs> Yeah, but you do sometimes get really interesting examples where um, culture and biology are really closely linked. Um, so one of my like I've got loads of favorite like little examples of stuff um, in certain areas in Fiji. Um, there are um, there are local groups that have really strong taboos about women eating seafood during pregnancy. And that seemed, on the face of it, that's like, okay, that, that's a really strange cultural thing that they've got there. What Does that mean anything? Is it just one of those quirks that sometimes cultures have their own little quirks? Well, actually, um, those groups that have those um, taboos experience... Um, seafood fo- food poisoning at 60% less frequency than areas that don't have those taboos. So it's not that we like those people had this genetic understanding that these fish were dangerous. It's that this taboo kind of crept in and then people were kind of healthier. So the taboo carried on. Because this cultural yeah. change ended up having a physiological benefit to people yeah. that believe in that taboo. Oh, that's—I mean, that's such a perfect example because that's that's an example of your of your eventually, right? Like we get to that biological eventually. Like it's not the, the reductive version is like biology creates the taboo, but actually it's this particular. There's a couple of steps in the middle there, and then a reinforcement mechanism over time, right? Sorry, Tom. It's like that age-old kind of saying is like you don't need to understand how fire works to understand it will burn you. You just got to stick your hand in it once. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you don't need to understand necessarily the, like with the seafood, that like all of the me- internal mechanics that lead to, okay, you might get food poisoning, which then has like knock-on effects. You just need to understand that, you know, if you eat it, you might get sick, so maybe don't. Yeah, you. I mean, you don't even need to understand that. You, you just have to know that there is a rule that says I don't do that and I'm not going to break the rules. And that, like, that's enough. Yeah. Um, so the reason we, we, we wanted to get you on the show, Kat, uh, is because this sort of topic of, like, tattooing as a evolutionary product or even, a, you know, in, um, in the 19th century for early kind of, sort of proto-scientific racists, uh, this idea that tattooing was indicative of sort of where you were on the evolutionary timeline as a culture. Um, this stuff comes up a lot. Um, and there was a thread, the sort of real 
impetus for this was a thread that someone added me in on uh, on Twitter, RIP, um, <laughs> <laughs> by uh, a guy called Nutri Detect, Nutrition Detective. Um, the classic kind of, uh, yeah, classic kind of fodder. <laughs> I for, apples. <laughs> ex- yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, they got a license for those lemons. Um, yeah. <laughs> But in basically, he did this whole thread about like how tattoos were terrible, and then kind of was retrofitting with like news articles and some some sort of scientific surveys and scientific papers about you know how tattooing was very bad for you. Um, one of them um, was um, <laughs> I'll read you this his tweet right. So he says six out of ten U.S. voters say tattoos make a person less attractive. Is there a plausible biological reason for this? There is. It's called aposematism. Aposematism is a term used to describe the use of bright coloration to advertise an organism is dangerous or unpalatable. We have an instinctual warning system. Bright, strong, dark colours equals toxic or dangerous. So what do you think about that? What do you think Everyone's about that? Everyone's head is in their hands as Matt is reading that. <laughs> You know, I've I've got several tattoos and nobody's ever tried to cannibalize me. So, you know yeah. therefore there you <laughs> must be onto something. That, do yeah, um that's do, really do, do, do nectar gathering insects cross the road when when they see you coming. <laughs> yes, but that's a different story. Um <laughs> Yeah. So that yeah, it's a really interesting just in that um interesting problem that does creep up like crop up over and over again of people sort of going well this happens in animals therefore oh definitely must happen in humans um and sometimes it is just like really silly um examples like that of like well if you've got brightly colored hair you you must be a toxic person it's like well okay (laughs) you're misunderstanding what toxicity is (laughs) like like, fine don't ingest them then um (laughs) Also, I think we all know that that colour isn't natural. Um, and like a lot of that that you're talking about, that's we're talking about natural production of these colours. Um, I mean, not everything that has a certain colour or a certain colour pattern will be toxic in the same way either. Like, Because you get things in nature like mimicry, where you'll get species of butterflies that have similar coloration and patterns to a different species of butterfly that is toxic, but that first one isn't toxic. But they kind of get the protective benefit of looking toxic. Um, so there's that. And, and it is just that, like I said, that thing of going, well, well, if animals do it, humans are animals, we must do it too. And a really dark example of that is in a lot of animal species, especially if it's a, um, depending on how they mate, how their mating system is, um, if it's if it's like a male controlling a harem of females, um, an incoming male might fight off the male that's currently in control and then kill as many babies as possible because that will speed up the process of the females coming into heat and reproducing again. And 
like, and that's not a universal thing through animals, but there are some famous examples like lions and I think langa monkeys. Um, and so it's not unusual to hear people say like, well, I wonder if that happens in humans, because every now and again, you will get a story of a step parent um, neglecting or even outright abusing um, stepchildren. It's not actually that common. <laughs> it's not common enough that you can go, well, that's adaptive or, or that's an adaptation. Um, and there's there's been plenty of research lo- looking at that specific hypothesis of are step parents more likely to um, injure stepchildren? And yeah. the answer is ugh, very, very, very slightly. Yeah. Very slightly. And because the I guess these... risk is not that they will actively harm, but there will be small, like, especially if they've got their own children, they might not pay quite as much attention to yeah. their stepchildren as they do to their own children. But, but there, again, is, there is many, like, so cultural, yeah, and there is many cultural potential reasons for that, or even individual reasons for that, as there are quote-unquote biological ones i mean i think that a lot of this stuff starts with the conclusion right like this this natural detective guy like the conclusion i don't like tattoos why don't i like them must be the bright colors why don't i like bright colors because toxic like it's sort of working back like the inference chain is working backwards right from your conclusion which strike which is yeah quite a problematic in lots of ways right yeah and it's absolutely fine to look at nature and, and look at other animals and go Oh, that that's an interesting quirk. This seems to be why they do that. I wonder if humans do the same thing. As long as you're willing to do the research properly, yeah. going into it, going, I need to design a test that will help me disprove this hypothesis. And then when the results come back and it shows your hypothesis is wrong, you go, oh, wow, okay, oh. guess I was wrong about that. Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> so... So what what do you think we can learn then right about tattooing from from the kind of methodologies that you're working with? Like what what is there if we're not talking about you know are tattoos toxic? Uh, are, you know do we not like tattooed people because we don't want to ingest them because toxic flowers? Like if that's not the right way to do it, like what what do you think we could we can learn or what is there to be learned? What has been learned, I guess, as well about the relationship between tattooing and and, and evolution. Um, so with that example of, um, why don't we like people with tattoos? It's like, well, is that true? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I, 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 I will have. Is that true in our society? I I will have to say that, you know, uh, Nutri Detect goes on to say when talking about toxic and dangerous, you know, tattoos is that tattoos have been previously linked to high risk behavior, such as drug use, sexual promiscuity, mental health disorders such as depression and subsequent suicidality, uh, aberrant personality traits, including a lack of social uh, sociability and reduced inhibition, psychopathy and schizophrenia. All of these have been associated with violent and early deaths. And I'm feeling like, I feel like you're reaching quite a lot in this consumption, in this assumption, Nutri Detect. Also, the fact there is no evidence cited with this claim unlike every other uh, claim he makes where he seems to have grabbed random, you know, research studies to support it. Yeah, that's that's a lot of things that he's saying that there's a relationship with. And also, even if those relationships are there, 
the next question is like, okay, well, how strong are they? And especially when you're talking about those kind of relationships or any sort of relationship between, you know, let's say people who are over six foot really love jigsaws. Like, <laughs> on average, like there's, there's a correlation between height and jig, jigsaw enjoyment. That might be true at a very big group level when you're asking loads and loads of people. But one, the strength of the relationship could be quite weak. Two, and the really important thing is, look, if you, if we, you found that relationship, assuming that everyone over six foot bloody loves jigsaws, <laughs> is incredibly foolish. And, and I think that's kind of one of the problems with psychological research in general is the research often goes there's a bit of a sort of general trend here if you look at a big group of people and everyone else goes well that sounds like a fact sound yeah and that's the stuff that gets in the newspapers and the press releases and then into the popular imagination right like i, I yeah. the, the 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 red lip thing that i cite i mentioned earlier on i've that's definitely a kind of factoid i think they get called right now where people sort of heard that somewhere it sounds sort of sciencey enough and i think i mean with with tattooing of course like the the associations particularly in europe as i t- talk about a lot like they change really rapidly depending on what the colonial situation is like in the 16th and 17th centuries it's like tattooing makes us just like everybody else like we're more along the evolutionary timeline from these people in the new world. And then we get to the 19th century and it's like, these people are subhuman because they have tattoos and we do not have them and we're different from them. So like the, the, the sort of rhetorical tools that these things get talked about whilst using the same kind of scientific or pseudoscientific in lots of cases, methodological frameworks um, is really, really fascinating. And that kind of careful as you said, Kat, like looking at it properly and seeing actually what is what is the data actually telling us and what are the mechanisms in action here and how, does this make any sense? Like that's the step that people seem to miss. Yeah. And so the paper that you sent me. Yeah. So um, this is um, this is a paper uh, which came out in March 23. Uh, and again, again, this was a kind of prox- proximate cause for inviting Kat on. Um Tattooing as a Phenotypic Gambit by Christopher D. Lynn et al. Um, Lynn is at the Department of Anthropology at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, and it was published in the Journal of American Journal of Biological Anthropology. So, yeah, so for, this, uh, this paper. I mean, for yeah, everyone you- at home, uh, oh. you should have seen Matt's reaction when I sent it, when this first came up. <laughs> I was reading this on the Overground Home today, and at one point exclaimed, oh, please, fuck off out loud. So, yeah, this so this paper, I'll just read the, um, the abstract, right? So it says, tattooing is not an evolved behavior, but maybe a phenotypic gambit to highlight immunological health. Phenotypic gambits are traits or behaviors that appear costly, but occur at high rates as a honing process of natural selection, not constrained by genetics. Tattooing is an ancient practice that is increasing in popularity worldwide, but involves wounding the body, which seems counterintuitive because it challenges the immune system and makes one more susceptible to infection. But, and this is their kind of theory, tattooing may represent a costly, honest signal of fitness by upping the ante in an era of hygiene, or a means to stimulate the immune system in a way that improves and highlights 
underlying fitness. So can you, yeah, can you explain kind of what that means and what you make of it, Kat, <laughs> with your professional head on? So it's difficult because they get dangerously close to saying something that I think might be right. Right. <laughs> but they kind of just swerve it at the last <laughs> minute, in my opinion. So what... Um, so, probably need to define what a phenotype is just for anyone yeah. that isn't into that. Um, so you've got your genotype, and that is basically your genes. What type of genes you've got, what, like what's going on in your cells. But obviously, from the outside, animals can't see each other's genetic profile. We can't see how, like, quote-unquote, healthy somebody's genes are. The closest approximation we've got is their outward appearance and behaviour, and that's their phenotype. Um, so where I think they get quite close to something interesting is this idea of a costly, honest signal. Right. Costly signals are really fascinating. Um, and I definitely think ideas around costly signalling can be interesting when looking at tattoos. But I think it's not going to be costly signals of physiological health. It's going to be a more cultural costly signal. So a costly um, signal would be like an animal using energy that it would otherwise kind of quote unquote rationally be conserving for eating and surviving to like make a beautiful nest or a particular ostentatious display or things like that. Is that right? Is that what a costly yeah, signal absolutely. is? Absolutely. So yeah. there's um loads of really great examples of it. Um the classic one is a pe peacock. Um and the general thought there is the peacock's kind of looking around and going, Look at my silly fucking tail. It's heavy, it's unwieldy, it makes me so obvious to predators. Now, if I wasn't such a brilliant specimen of a Mr. Peacock, would I really survive into adulthood while dragging this fucking thing around? And so the peahens then go, oh, wow, yes, good point. You must be amazing at escaping predators. You must be really good at eating and gaining enough energy to be able to fly around with that thing. Let's have sex and we'll have very sexy children. And I could fight you with one on. hand tied behind my back kind of thing. Yeah, that that kind of thing. Of like, I, I'm so brilliant at this. I can handicap myself and still beat you. Um, the, the, so it is referred to as the Harvey's Handicap Principle. That's why I used that specific phrase, which is not nice, but um, that's that's what it's called because yeah. uh, it was an idea come up with in the seventies, which was you know a great time for everyone. I can't Times. believe this is the first time I'm learning that the female version of a peacock is a pea hen. Did you not yeah. know that? Do you think it was a lady peacock? I just thought they were both called peacocks. Like I don't or know, pea fanny. Maybe <laughs> pea fanny. Where we are going to petition. The Biological Society of England to change it to P. Fanny. <laughs> Although that would really confuse Americans, because that, that just means arse. <laughs> so, so this paper's basically trying to prove... that They, they, they say that there's two hypotheses to explain how short-term harm could be evolutionary adaptive. One, 
Its popularity is, is a result of sexual selection favoring ornamentation for symbolic communication, the human canvas hypothesis. And this second one, being tattooed comes with physiological costs that can highlight immunological health, the upping the anti hypothesis. Previous research indicates that tattooing might reflect fitness advantages by highlighting attractiveness, bilateral sym symmetry. Um, uh, depends, depends on who's your tattooist, I guess. Um, <laughs> Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, so they're trying to work with this, this, yeah, physiological cost hypothesis, and they're testing it by doing saliva samples on quite a small number of people, 40 people, and testing their saliva to see if their saliva has more, indicates more immune response. Yeah. So right? it's, te it's testing the cortisol response in both pre-test and post-test, so pre-tattooing and post-tattooing, but the methodological problem in that is that like cortisol responds in reaction to any sort of physical strains, either like physical trauma sustained in something like tattooing or something similar, which this is why I know about it, is like going to the gym. So like you will have a cortisol <laughs> you're so, response. You're in so buff, Tom. <laughs> Um, in response to sustained physical strain. So that can either be through the adrenal response when receiving skin trauma through tattooing or similar, the adrenal response when you are like lifting very heavy weights and you know, cortisol is released into the muscles in response to this trauma. So varying levels of cortisol are used to combat physical pain. So, I mean, before we sort of look, specifically at what they're testing, there's a there's a more general problem of um <laughs> one, saliva's not that great for testing what's going on in somebody's body. Um <laughs> like blood is more accurate, but it's a little bit hard to get hold of and you like you've got to do more forms. There's more <laughs> um ethics involved. Usually some training because like not everyone can go around stealing blood apparently. It's very annoying. <laughs> um and then there's the fact Again. that, like, spit can... <laughs> well, I mean, just not with university approval. I mean, <laughs> just be really sneaky about it. Um, no, don't steal people's blood. That's bad. Um, don't tell Dracula that. Stealing people's blood is wrong. <laughs> this is a pro-vampire podcast. <laughs> I can just imagine the... somebody telling that to Dracula and him go, oh, crap. <laughs> I always thought what I was doing was incredibly ethical. <laughs> I'm going to do a PhD on the ethics of uh, Dracula sustaining his own life. How, how do we create ethical vampires? Who knows? <laughs> um, so... Uh, oh no! Okay, we're not opening that box. Um, <laughs> my brain has an answer for you, but it's disgusting, um, or at least quite weird. So we'll no. Um, carry on with the science. Yeah. So um, saliva can quite easily get contaminated as well. Um, so there's there's quite a lot of research that looks into um, masculinity and testosterone, which again frequently uses spit samples. And then finds that, um, oh, really manly men have higher testosterone. One big problem with that is that testosterone is easier to detect in blood. And if you are living a rough and tumble lifestyle, which would... So not, not manly men, that was probably the wrong phrasing, but um, sort of people who 
are more impulsive and make decisions that might be good in the short term but bad in the long term uh, stuff that we'd refer to as like having a high rate of future discounting you, the research using spit to see if saliva mouthy mouthy wet um, testosterone <laughs> levels correlate with that kind of behavior might find a positive correlation but if you're living that rough and tumble lifestyle you're more likely to have damaged gums so you're more likely ah. to have small levels of blood in your saliva, which could artificially increase the amount of testosterone that's detected in your spit. Oh wow! So, and particularly if you're looking at just... if you're looking at a, 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 an N of forty, and you're making yeah. your hypotheses on forty people, that, that those kind of even potential contaminations can really affect your data sets, right? Yeah, I mean, does it sound? I guess like the question. This is maybe what you were alluding to at the beginning when we, uh, when you come onto this. Like, do you think even the the hypothesis that tattooing, you know, sort of persist? I guess, I guess the 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 most charitable version of this would be like persisted as a cultural practice because it had it, it conferred some kind of um, survival survivability or some fitness. Like, is that itself a, a plausible hypothesis? Do you think, like, given what you know about how cultural practices have evolved. I mean, talk, talking uh, analogous, I guess, in some ways to the, um, the 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 shellfish example you mentioned earlier. Like, does it even seem plausible as a hypothesis? Um, to an extent. Yeah. Um, so one of the big problems that, yeah. So the, the concept that one might engage in activities that outwardly seem um, harmful, in some way, could convey some sort of benefit is plausible. Um, like you, especially with sort of religion research, you actually see a fair bit of this, of people engaging in really potentially costly activities, whether it's um, body mod modification, long pilgrimages, um, those those kind of like publicly putting yourself in a dangerous situation or publicly harming yourself but it's not because those things will immediately result in you showing off something about your immune system or anything physiological that's probably better interpreted as a costly signal or something that's referred to as an inferentially potent display of your commitment to those beliefs which then that would be a great name for a tattoo shop if anyone's looking for a new name for their shop. Inferentially potent display. It'd be a great name yeah. for a, a tattoo studio. Yeah, because yeah, I guess um, like I mean the, the the basic I guess the basic idea is like if it killed you, right? If tattooing was really harmful, people wouldn't do it, right? Or it wouldn't be as widespread and it wouldn't be as culturally persistent over five and a half thousand years or whatever. Um, but if I'm understanding what you're saying, it's 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 more that actually. Because it doesn't kill you, even though it does clearly have some risk, you know, I think the risks are probably overblown in some of this research in terms of infection and healing time and stuff. But like, take there clearly is a kind of, you know, there is a kind of health implication here. But this this hypothesis of the um, indicativeness of, of immunological health, or or at least the kind of fact that it doesn't, it, in a way, it doesn't sort of neg negatively affect that. That's that's one reason 
in part for explaining its tattooing's persistence as a practice over time. Would that is that is that is that fair? I don't know. Possibly. Like so, one of the really difficult <laughs> things about evolution research is one feature can have more than one function. Yeah, and it can have more than one function depending on the context. Um, so, if we take a mouth, a human mouth, that has like you can use that for breathing, eating, um, fighting, mating, uh, making friends. It has has all of those functions. So to go, your mouth is for breathing. Yeah, it's like well, I mean, yes, no, like yeah. you're not like yeah. That's that's a really um, good point. That's a- Another kind of key feature of that naturalistic fallacy, right? Like X is for Y, or we are evolved to do X, or we are evolved to do Y. It's not. That's not how this works. Yeah, and then like the the flip side, the other thing that's kind of curious about studying evolution is sometimes the the thing, the adaptation looks different um, in different contexts, but serves the same function. Uh, so language is probably the best example of this. Is like we know being able to talk is an adaptation, and we know this because um, it's universal. Like all humans, um, unless there's there's some sort of like there's there's deafness or some sort of physiological problem, um, all humans talk. Um, Children will develop speech in a really predictable way. Like, they'll start babbling, then they'll start picking up certain words, then they'll start constructing sentences, and then they'll start to get to grips with grammar, and it'll, that, that'll develop in a predictable way. Um, and that they pick it up really easily. Like, you don't have to really teach kids to talk as long as they're exposed to it enough they kind of pick it up and understand the meaning so we know language is an adaptation but depending on what culture you're in it can sound incredibly different because although that adaptation's there in different cultural concept contexts it'll be expressed differently and that you know that's your different languages um so and it can happen with behaviors of like you'll look at something and go well that that behavior is really strange and then dig into it and go, oh, it's serving the same function as this behavior that I'm really familiar with. Like it's solving the same problem of survival or reproduction. Um, so that, that's another difficult one. So back to do I think tattoos um, can be seen as um, purposefully injuring yourself to show off your um, immune strength? Not in our culture really unlikely because um it's just not that dangerous in our culture and i did try and do research to find if this question's been asked but um i have terrible time management skills um but i could i could believe that in cultures where there are or areas of the world where there's high risk of pathogen stress that maybe um, extreme scarification could be indicative of, and, and how that heals, 
could give you a bit of an insight of how healthy that person is, how good their immune system function is. Um, or it could eat and it could and even be that somebody... And therefore makes them more sexually attractive, right? That's the other important step, that, that it's not just indicative, it also then increases their kind of reproductive fitness, right? Yeah, potentially. Or it could even be that, um, that it doesn't really show um, immune system function, um, or it might show pain tolerance. Yeah. And there might hypothetically be some sort of relationship between the amount of physical punishment you can take and how good you are at like hunting or how good you are at making war. And that in turn could um, affect your perceived mate value in that cultural context. That story, that hypothesis, I... If there was evidence to support it, I could believe that. Yeah. <laughs> but well, I guess that's, the, I mean, this yeah. is the question as well, right? About, because I, th- I think, yeah, this, so this particular paper that we've been talking about, I don't think in terms of the evidence, it doesn't really, it isn't very convincing. And I, I end up, where I end up, I guess, is like, you know, the, I think this, this kind of expert, no, this kind of impulse to try and kind of understand why people would do this strange thing to themselves um, comes out of, yeah, as, I mean, as you said, like a pretty normative place, right? It comes out of this position of trying to understand why a particular culture that is kind of quote unquote not ours, and ours meaning the kind of white European scientific establishment historically. Um, and, and, then it, and then it kind of, without the kind of evidence of the kind you're talking about, sort of gets to its conclusions anyway. And 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 that's what and, and then from those conclusions, you know, like as I said uh before we came on, like the, the earliest uh like criminological writing about tattooing sort of reads tattoos on criminals in the Italian prison system as indicative of them being almost a different species of human, you know, more like the savages of Africa in inverted commas than kind of you know contemporary nineteenth century Italians because those again in quote savages in Africa have tattoos we Europeans don't have tattoos therefore this is indicative that this person is um, you know almost yeah almost different from us and like that ignores the fact that Europeans have been tattooing as just as long as people everywhere else pretty much as far as you know the oldest preserved tattoos we have are European. Um, and it kind of starts from that faulty, pre- not even faulty premise, but faulty conclusion. They want to kind of justify the status quo, essentially, and work backwards. I think like what I found super interesting about the discussion on this paper particularly is like, actually, there is something interesting here potentially, but like in a way we, we can't know it from the data that's presented here because alternative hypotheses aren't considered. And actually, even if that is a kind of genesis, it's certainly not the reason people are getting tattooed now, right? Yeah. Yeah, and like I think the some of the writing in it, like the internal logic seems a bit odd as well. <laughs> like they're sort of like, well, the world we're living in is so clean and so hygienic, we need to invent new ways to challenge our immune systems to show right. just how healthy we are. So <laughs> we're getting tattoos more and more. It's like, well, maybe we're getting tattoos more and more because it's safe. Because it is safe yeah. to do that. And if we really want to run around showing off our great immune system, why aren't we just licking bricks and like chopping <laughs> fingers off, you know? Like, why tattoos specifically? That's almost like the reverse. It's almost having your cake and eat it, right? Now you've said that. It's like 
people got tattooed because it wasn't safe. And now people are getting tattooed because it is safe. And it's the same reason. And you're like, okay. Why don't we lick bricks is definitely going to be the episode title. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, are you enjoying the show? If you really like Beneath the Skin and you want to help support us, you can do so on Patreon. For little as five quid a month, you can help make this show possible. Help us buy research materials. So, if you like the show and you want to support us, consider kicking us a few quid a month. And you'll get everything from bonus episodes to Q&As. And you can even vote on what tattoo I'll get when we reach a certain subscriber count. Matt, have you got anything to say? You should really definitely uh, fund the Patreon because tattoo history is massive, right? Deep, wide, complicated. We're covering some big hit topics on the main feed, but on the Patreon subscriber-only feed, we'll be getting into some really more interesting niche deep topics you don't want to miss out on and honestly the chance to kind of decide what thomas gets on his body is probably just a once in a lifetime opportunity subscribe chuck us a few quid don't miss out on the chance to ruin thomas's body forever everyone knows that tattoo aftercare is one of the most important steps in getting a new tattoo We all want our fresh new tattoos to heal as easily and hassle-free as possible so we can show them off to the world. That's why Saniderm's here to help. Driven by science and innovation, Saniderm products have been thoroughly tested and used by doctors and tattoo artists alike for over 10 years. Saniderm brings cutting-edge technology to make your tattoo healing process a breeze. No more messing around with cleaning and plastic every few hours with Saniderm's amazing range of aftercare products. I personally have used Saniderm to heal my tattoos in the past, and they made what used to be a daily process of setting reminders on my phone to clean and rewrap my tattoo into a one-step process. Their medical-grade products include aftercare balms, soaps, and my favourite, their second skin aftercare bandages. Saniderm's tattoo bandages are designed to be waterproof, breathable, and keep your new tattoo protected from whatever the elements can throw at it so you can get on with your day worry-free and confident your new tattoo will look vibrant and will heal faster. Plus, their products are all natural and ethically sourced, so you can take comfort in knowing that you're healing your tattoos with nature's finest ingredients. So next time you're in an artist's chair, why not try Saniderm, healing your tattoos the modern way so you can get on with your day. Check out the link in the description of this episode for discounts on a range of Saniderm products or for more information. Um, Kat, you mentioned that like this paper got really close to like an actual like very salient point but swerved in a different direction what is that like close that truth that they got very close to so i think they nearly hit on something when they start talking about uh costly honest signals because i think you can interpret tattoos as costly signals but not of biology like you they're really expensive (laughs) Yeah, like they could be um, a a signal for some people of wealth. They could be um, a signal of um, how much you care about a specific thing or how committed you are to a group. Like they can be used as a really good um, show of commitment to to an idea or to a group. Um, There was a really good paper that I got about halfway through reading and then I needed a nap because I'm a child, <laughs> that, that looks at, um, like, signals of and, um, like, costly signals 
and ideas of subjective commitment and objective commitment and how when you publicly do a, a display that I'm really committed to this idea, it makes it harder to back down than if you just sort of internally go, oh, do you know what? I think I think this. Um, and tattoos could be one of the many ways people can sometimes go like, I'm super committed to this idea or this group. And then backing out is now suddenly not just an internal process, it's like potentially embarrassing. You've told the world. Um, people who are on the opposing side might now shun you because of your tattoo. You've reduced your, your opportunities for socialising. Um, and you might end up having to spend loads of money getting burnt by lasers to get it off or and I, you I, don't need you don't need saliva samples to, to to talk about those kind of things right that's that's definitely more on the kind of psychology side social psychology yeah. or even sociology side of things rather than like you don't need to, you don't need to like sort people's saliva to, to think about those yeah. questions right sure so like so they're looking at costly signals in a very um very biological way i think cut costly signal theory can be applied to tattoos in a very psychological way yeah. mm -hmm. rather than biological. So that's, that is where they kind of get close to saying something interesting and then <laughs> hard right at the lights. <laughs> well, I was, uh, I was going to say as a counterpoint to something you both mentioned, if anyone has ever seen any footballer, you know that people who have lots of money have terrible tattoos. So it, 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 not a the people who have no money usually have great tattoos because they spend all their money on tattoos. That's a good point, actually. So, so poorer people are more choosy about their tattoo artist because it's yep. it's a bigger chunk of their their income. Maybe is that is that what you yep, proposing? So, so sounds <laughs> sounds like a PhD, Matt. Matt, do you want to give me a PhD? <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, I mean, you could be onto something. Like maybe rich people are more likely to get a boatload of crap tattoos. And in a way, that is signalling. Like, I have so much money. I look like a doodle bear from the 90s. <laughs> I, I, I would argue it's I the don't, age I can old... I afford to ruin my skin. I would argue it's the age yeah. old well, adage I mean, of that, again, money can't buy. Almost being a, you can think about those inference things the other way, other way around. You know, like people who have toes in their face who don't get to be little Wayne or, you know, Gucci man or whatever. Like, we don't hear about that. Or Post Malone. Um, sort of bit of survivorship bias there. Um, I wanted to like talk about the other paper that I sent round because, like, it's a bit older, but it also is a it makes up some even bigger claims. Um, it's from 2012, so it's quite old now, but uh, it was published in the Review of General Psychology uh, journal published by the American Psychological Association. So, pretty like a legit journal. I think, um, and it's called ultimate answers to proxy ultimate answers. Like this is what I liked about it and why I picked it to talk about because it's so, it's so like, it's so kind of confident of itself. Ultimate answers to proximate questions, the evolutionary motivations behind tattoos and body piercings in popular culture, um, by a trio of scholars, Rachel Carmen, Amanda Guitar and Haley Dillon at state university of New York. And, um, I, I love this because it includes one of my favorite, bugbears that makes my teeth itch where it says um you know tattoos used to be just for sailors you know used to be confined to uh, yeah uh, uh once reserved this is the academic version of it once reserved for specific subgroups within our culture um and i've been reading examples of that 
uh, in newspaper headlines since the 1870s. So it does this kind of it does this kind of idea of like um, false contemporaneity, something that you I think also also applies to that last paper. Um, but yeah, this also kind of uh, again maybe maybe I should read the abstracts and ask you what you think, Kat. So the abstract here, numerous studies have found piercing and tattooing the body is increasingly prevalent in modern popular culture. However, this is not modern. Evidence of various forms of body ornamentation have been found in human societies taking about thousands of years. Although prior research has focused on the potential relationships between various personality traits and the likelihood of piercing or tattooing the body, few have approached the topic from an evolutionary perspective. Um, then they say uh, uh, motivations. So symbols of love or group membership or individuality. These motivations are proximate behaviours for an ultimately evolutionary reason, the perpetuation of one's genes. In this article, we propose two new theories about the origins, um, the human canvas hypothesis and the upping the anti-hypothesis. So this is the one of the things that this later paper was testing. Um, but it's much more confident in talking about extended phenotypes and costly signalling and... Yeah, it even talks about the fact that the navel piercing, um, which uh, you know was came to prevalence in the 1990s, um, is also kind of explicable through evolutionary <laughs> means. Um, so this is one of the one of the sort of feed-ins to that paper we were just talking about. But I I, I thought we I wanted to talk about it because it's much it, it's much more confident, but much less um, data driven than that. Later paper. So yeah, I don't know what 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 do you think about about that paper, Kat? Um, so one of the things that I just have to say out loud is probably <laughs> my smallest criticism or the, the least important criticism that one could possibly have about this paper is that there's a bit in there where they say that Rachel and Friends gets a tattoo on her abdomen. <laughs> oh, she yeah. doesn't it's on her hip. It's like if you like how how can I trust your research in general if you can't even be asked to watch a single fucking episode of Friends and like you don't know the difference between an abdomen and your hip <laughs> like I so either you haven't done the research or your understanding of biology is just horrendous like literally back to front but anyway. <laughs> That's. <laughs> that's i think what well, that is indicative yeah i, I uh, yeah i mean yeah, i mean i was all, already angry before i got to that point so yeah I tom did even more strongly <laughs> tom was getting angry with it as well i mean i i i i, I mean i started off angry because it when it got to the section on punk i was once again on the overground and i have quite a lot of like you know sociological theories and like political political sociology and cultural stuff about punk being one myself and it's like it just seems like they just read google like when they talked about punk and they completely missed you know the fact that like you know it was sociological rebellion rather than some sort of like psychological like it was much more like of a cultural thing and it's just like it just seems like they looked at the cover of London Calling for five minutes and just stared on and said, now I understand punk. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I, I, I talked a lot about, you know, uh, why I think this kind of lack of knowledge of tattoos history actually affects a lot of this kind of research. Like actually kind of what you were talking about, Kat, as well, like 
there are ways to think about these hypotheses, but they have to start from understanding what the facts of the inputs are. And like this, this whole paper is like no one basically no one got tattooed before the 1960s, and like the the 1990s when tattooing became trendy, and you know, 2008 piercing and tattooing are mainstream, and like those were things that I mean with some degrees of truth and, and falsity, but like were being reported in the 1890s, like a hundred years earlier. And if you acknowledge that and understand that all the other stuff, it's like goes out the window as well. Right. Because you're basing your inferences about the, uh, the, the, the evolutionary reasons for this stuff or the evolutionary functions for tattooing, you're basing it on incorrect data. Right. And um, go on. I think that's kind of indicative of like a larger problem in general. Um, partly in any study of humans and human behaviour, and partly academia in general, because we're we're so so stuck in our little silos that actually these kind of ideas would really benefit from going like, okay, these are my hypotheses. This is like my understanding of the situation. Um, however, what would a historian of tattoos say about it? Um, what is the cross-cultural understanding of tattoos and bodily modifications? Actually, before I publish this, maybe I should talk to an immunologist as well. But we, we don't tend to do that, which is in part because we were, academics are frequently just expected to churn information out as fast as possible, which ultimately really reduces the quality and means where we could be making like slow, reasonable steps towards understanding stuff, we're occasionally taking little steps backwards because we're getting all tangled because we're not talking to each other. Yeah, and like I mean, I, I as someone who like is currently head of interdisciplinary studies at the University of Essex, um, I completely agree with that. Right, because, uh, although the um, psychologists at my university. Uh, and not part of the direct courses that we teach, but like getting people to talk across disciplines is super important for that exact reason. Because like, yeah, you end up making you end up making really basic mistakes of history and of anthropology and of and of other even other branch of science. And then when you when you kind of mash them together, you end up it, it with 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 really well you try and match them together you end up in some really strange places i mean i was i was sort of struck by this paper because it like pings around um it 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 gets even the dates it's citing from uh margot demello's book wrong like by uh, by by 200 years in some cases Ooh. and demello herself yes, demello herself is not very good anyway <laughs> Oh yeah, two hundred years isn't much for you guys. Like two hundred years is fucking nothing to us. Yeah, this is fine. (laughs) Um, But like, I mean, even Demello, whose work is generally pretty good, but she is also not particularly historically contingent because she's a sociologist. So they're they're drawing upon us like only on one sociologist for all of this history. History, and and they're making these huge leaps of like what they call ritualistic tribal origins into then. uh, world uh, World War Two tattooing and like actually, as I've pointed out before, when the Europeans encounter tattooing in the Pacific, literally nothing changes. Like the t- tattooing that's happening in London 
uh, pre and post the 1760s is exactly the same. So we don't import the quote-unquote tribal tattooing at all. It might look like it if you look, just look at the fact that the Royal Navy start recording tattooing around the same time. Um, but actually, it's sort of it's literally the opposite, right? Like the tattooing practices that are happening in Europe do not change. And so to try and go, it begins with this tribal um, uh, tribal importation that tells us something about, which is again itself really offensive because it's like, well, it's tribal, therefore it's old, and denying. Um, my my friends Sebastian Galliot and Sean Mallon write about this in their book about Samoan tattooing. They're like, this stuff's got a history as well. Like it gets just because they're studying it in the 19th century doesn't mean that's what it was like hundreds and thousands of years ago. Like non-European culture gets to have a timeline as well as just a place, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. So there's all these kind of mistakes of history which then get put into this like evolutionary kind of story which is like well it was like that in tribal societies thousands of years ago therefore and therefore it was like that in europe therefore it was like that in the 1990s with rachel from friends therefore it must be it must be um like because of evolution and this is something really indicative when i was talking to you matt about this paper is like this feels like it was written by grad students which you confirmed it was written by grad students I think, I, I, as far as I could tell, I think like the lead author, I don't think is in academia anymore, but, um, and, but all, the only web hits I found for her were when she was working as a grad student. So if she went on to a, an academic post, I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's not, but it is, it is published in a, certainly a journal that's like got the imprimatur of the APA who are very good. So, mm-hmm. you know, like, I don't know, what- like... <laughs> Like one paragraph, obviously, I mentioned the Pong thing that just like I read it and it really like stuck out to me. Um, they're talking about you know the physical adornment of punks with you know safety pins, uh, stick and poke tattoos, and we say here we see costly signaling in a more extreme form, a visual signal of self mutilation. Unlike previous subcultures that intended to make statements through the symbols or texts, punks took tattooing and piercing one step further. And, uh, and attempted to display their ideals through self-inflicted physical harm displays, we believe due to their due to the adaptive benefits of displaying biological quality. And I'm like, have you ever met a single punk in your life? <laughs> also, like, so that's actually a really good example of what they seem to do quite a lot in this paper of, like, they're saying stuff I'm like, okay, I'm following the logic, I'm following the logic, and then they just suddenly make this huge leap of like, oh, and therefore that's a display of biological quality. Like, oh, just no, slow down, <laughs> take a breath. <laughs> Let's think. Fully explain yourself, please. It's like the theoretical long jump. You know, you take like seven really quick steps and then yes. you jump six feet forward. Yeah, that is exactly the image that has been in my head <laughs> from reading this. Um, yeah, I think one th- one thing I do want to point out because um, it's a bit deep into the weeds and nerdy and i like it it's what we like so the title of this paper if you're unfamiliar with certain bits of old like oldish biology and and and, um uh, behavioral sciences this title sounds incredibly bombastic (laughs) (laughs) when actually it's it's making a little nod to something that's known as tim bergen's four questions Ah, interesting. Which are like the four questions of biology. 
and they kind of get split up into proximate questions and ultimate questions. Aha. Uh-huh. Um, so that's, that's what they're kind of nodding to. Um, so like your proximate questions are things like, what's the mechanism? What, what's the obvious causation that's resulted in this? So if you were talking about something like lactation, you'd be looking at, okay, well, what are the hormones involved in lactation? That would be a, a proximate answer to the question of what's lactation about? Um, there's then ontogeny or development. So if you want to look at um, lactation and the ontogeny of um, lactation, you'd be talking about um, uh, mammary glands and how through a, um, an, a mammal's life, those bits of physiological kit start to, um, start to exist. Um, and then use your ultimate questions, which are the kind of long-term whys. And so that yeah. would be like the adaptive value of like, well, okay, well, what is like, what's the adaptive value of lactating? What problem of survival and reproduction does could lactation possibly be solving here? And then your other ultimate question is phylogeny, which is like, okay, what is like across species, the evolutionary history over millions right. of years of lactation. So yeah, so that like yeah, like if you're not familiar with those questions, that type yeah, of So that's like, the what? mistake I make as a non-specialist and go, what is the ultimate reason here? <laughs> like, oh, do you think you've got the answer to the universe, do you? And it's like, well, yeah. I mean, yeah. they've also made a choice to use those words. Um and they've included it and not mentioned Tim Bergen's four questions at all. So, like, it's no, he's not. He's not cited but... in the reference lists. Uh, no. Or there's there's no references. I mean, because I I was sort of also struck reading this, you know, um, by so they they come to the conclusion. Um, Tattooing and piercing have deep ancestral roots that are expressed through our popular culture. Like, I agree with that. The need to express oneself through body orientation transcends all cultural and social barriers. I don't think that's true. And then it says, we're all children of symbolic thought. Yes, that's true. And then the only difference between us is how we choose to express. And then they, which I think is true. And then they say our deepest evolution we need. And I think that's not true. So like it ends up in weird places. Like I was struck by um, something that I came across. When I was writing my book where um, some, an art historian pointed out that art historians have to import theories of intention from anthropology because we don't really care why people paint. Like it's not an interesting question to us. Um, we're just interested in what the painted things produce. And actually sometimes the search for function um although often in, te- in, in its kind of nicest versions and its most kind of optimistic forms is, are intended to avoid kind of cultural chauvinism can actually end up being really reductive. So if you, if you sort of ask why, why do you tattoo yourself, you can end up with a, I think, in a strange place sometimes. But like ultimately where this paper gets to is like that, that sentence, like tattooing is expressed through popular culture. It's like, yes, because tattooing is, is popular culture, right? <laughs> yeah. Like that's why. And and if you f- if you miss out, for example, you know the fact that uh, there's this huge link between the birth of a tattoo industry and the fashion for everything Japanese, like 
if you try and think about them as separate, if you think about this this strange practice of sticking stuff in your skin as separate, you end up in a different place. Like, no, it's just people like these pictures and actually carrying them around is on their bodies is just part of the same cultural impulse. Like, and and the other thing that I've talked about, um, we did, I gave a talk about this at a conference. Um, I, I, went, I gave a talk at an interdisciplinary tattoo scholars conference um, where I sort of talk about like how, like what you shouldn't do when you're doing tattoo research, in my opinion. And one of the things is like this, like don't, 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 don't do this because you're going to end up in some weird places because there's also this like visibility problem. So if you don't see the tattoos of the past, particularly in, in Europe, um, or even if you don't see tattoos in the present or in the near present under clothing, you're going to have a really different idea about the the reasons for quite, quite why people get tattooed. And then your all of your explanations end up in a weird place. And like this is what frustrates me about this kind of quite sloppy uh, Evo psych stuff. Is it like the conclusion here of the paper is like people like tattoos and they're and they're part of popular culture. It's like yeah. I don't understand what the what the kind of overdetermination of the reproductive fitness of it does, particularly when you're missing out loads of detail. You know, yeah, missing out loads of steps. I think so. I may may we can't generalize from um, a population study of one, but I have a little hunch that people, or I know, I got into evolutionary psychology or using evolution to look at human behavior because i never grew out of being that really annoying kid that wouldn't stop asking why so that explanation of like yeah people get images tattooed on themselves of images that they like like yeah okay but why (laughs) why are they doing that and after that and so this comes back to my idea of like yeah the answer is evolution eventually like if you sit there and ask why for long enough you are eventually going to end up at evolution but like those steps in between are really interesting and it's really important not to make big leaps when you've got to make teeny tiny steps and sometimes those ultimate evolutionary answers are going to be really dull they're just they're just (laughs) going to be like because humans breathe air because you need air like or like or just or like i said earlier humans are just good at learning yeah and the, the steps in between are what get the headlines but as you said the steps in between are not ultimately the interesting thing and we we've talked today about two one this paper and then that thing that's cited by our, our friend nutri detective um mm-hmm. with the same evidence for the opposite conclusion tattooing is good yeah. for reproductiveness and oh no, tattooing puts people. Why don't I find tattooed people attractive? Because the savannah, right? Because these <laughs> yeah. or whatever. And when when you're when you're making when you're sort of picking your which points of that infinitely complex, as you said, data set and history, and with all these kind of in, um, intersecting things of biology and history and culture and all of that stuff, when you when you can sort of stop the wheel and come to a conclusion. If you're not careful and you're not honest about what the data shows, you can literally use the same kind of logic in inverted commas to argue two completely opposite things. And actually, as you said, have have you checked? Have you thought about that in a more ultimate way? And I think I think that way that, that what you're talking about there of like, yeah, of course, like ultimately there's something evolutionary going on here about who we are as 
a, a conscious species of mammal on this particular planet like yeah that's that's a beautiful thing and actually understanding that is really important um uh does it frustrate you actually like that your field gets kind of miss you know there there are people in your field who who are not as careful and as cautious and as as um uh yeah like diligent with the evidence as you as you are in 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 connecting these evolutionary well you say that but if you haven't read any of my research (laughs) i'm talking a really good game (laughs) right now Well, we have we, we we as I said, we have friends in common, and I trust their um, who were recommended you to come on the show. Um, I mean, so I'd, I'd heard you on a, on their podcast, um, and they said they referred me to you, and I trust their judgment on you. So, um, yeah, but I mean, this this is one of the mechanisms through which nonsense gets into science. We sort of assume that that person oh, yeah. is really a good smart, point. and so we this just kind really of take that point. word for it. And because we've all got limited time and limited resources, and you know, I trust that person; they probably didn't lie. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely fair. But it's it's, met- it's methodological, though, right? I I I, I think the, the it's the approach that really interests me. I, I'm a I'm a methodology nerd. Um, I teach methodology to my students and and it, it's it's how and I, I i as a even as a humanity scholar learn so much by paying attention to scientists whose work i respected on a methodological front because it's like asking the questions in the right way and as you said today like what frustrates me reading stuff like this the 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 problems with it become quite obvious just methodologically before you even get to the data um and that seems to be i mean that's a big discussion in evo psych generally right yeah, well, I think especially something like evolutionary psychology, it's there's a big question of like, okay, well, what ideas are actually falsifiable here? So one of the kind of cod bits of evolutionary psychology that I occasionally get asked about is um, is this idea that is it true that people who are attracted to women like boobs because it <laughs> reminds them of bums yeah that's the famous one isn't it that's yeah such a weird one i mean front bum and a back bum yay is that <laughs> the logic there or like it let's pretend that's a plausible explanation for liking boobs it how how do you even begin to try and falsify that idea yeah right like that that idea is almost not worth discussing because yeah. All, all we have is modern humans, and if you're arguing that all modern humans that are attracted to breasts are attracted to breasts because of bums, like, like the, I don't, I don't even know where you start to try and test that idea. So it's almost not worth asking. Um, and I think sometimes, and there's definitely issues of people. Um, coming up with a nice little story that they make sense and then they go digging for evidence to support their little story. Or even just plausible, so doing plausible inferences, right? Not even evidence a lot of the time. Yeah. And it yeah. And it it's it is difficult to sort of pick out the the good stuff from the utter nonsense sometimes. Yeah. Well this is um, this is why this is why you've yeah. got a career cat and why we're glad to have you. <laughs> right, I've got yeah. a, I've got a um Again, I could keep talking to you forever, but like Tom's got to edit this down, and uh, I could keep talking to you for ages. We've done this on other other episodes with guests. Um, I have so much more I'd love to talk to you about, but we'll have to have you back on again, Kat. 
Okay, well, I'll have to do more homework. Oh, no, we're, please, we're reaching the limit I... of things I know. Not at, <laughs> not, not, at all. not at all. We'll just find more terrible articles for you to school us on. Okay, yeah, I can see that being brilliant for my stress levels. <laughs> <laughs> okay, oh, brilliant. Well, thank you very much for like inviting me on and stuff. This has been a lot of fun, and it's yeah, it's always good to have like a concrete reason to do a specific bit of research and reading because yeah. like there's so much knowledge out there. <laughs> yeah, and there's so much stuff that you could be reading about that having a focal point it can be can be really good. It's such a busy t- period of time, so like we're super grateful, and um, yeah, I, I just could, could touch you for. Um, oh, my online presence isn't that that obvious anymore because you know Twitter died, um, and Facebook's private. Um, <laughs> so instead, what I'd recommend is checking out some of the things that I'm adjacent to and sometimes help out with. Um, so that would be Skeptics in the Pub online, um, which is basically um well it's like skeptics in the pub but on the internet <laughs> and it like kind of started because of like lockdowns and stuff it meant that um people across the country that are part of the skeptics network could still have um access to like regular interesting um lectures and we have like a virtual pub afterwards as well um so that's that's a monthly thing and if you just look um the website address is just sitp dot online, and that'll get you to all that information. Um, I also spend a lot of time hanging out with the Merseyside Skeptics people, and they have a bunch of podcasts that are released at varying degrees of regularity. <laughs> so, like Skeptics with a K is every other week. Um, Be reasonable is sometimes monthly, and. Um, incredulous is just whenever the stars happen to align that way. Um, I've heard it referred to as the pitch drop test of podcasts because <laughs> it's very, very rare and unpredictable. Um, so yeah, just basically skepticy stuff. Yeah, all of them. Are, all of them are great. And you write for the Skeptic Magazine, don't you? Online as well, sometimes. Yeah, very, very much sometimes. And yeah, uh, Marsh, who's the editor, is a. Uh, once more, and I've promised him a lot, <laughs> but I just keep getting distracted by shiny things and naps. Yep, Solid- Sol- solidarity, friend, solidarity. <laughs> okay, um, thank you so much, uh, Kat, um, and we'll yeah, we'll speak to you, speak to you again. Yeah, well, thank you. It's been brilliantly fun. And if you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more, you can check us out on Patreon. That is Beneath the Skin podcast on Patreon. Want to thank our £10 and above listeners, Morpheus Ravenna, Chris Block, Kirsten Wright, Kathleen Burkhardt, Joshua Kent, Jordan Best, Jess Goodman, James Schick and Charlie Lightning. I used to be able to do this in one breath, but I had a cigarette right before we started recording, so kind of ruined my chances of that. Um, Thank you very much for all of our free listeners for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you want to hear more, check us out on Patreon. We got bonus stuff. We got the episodes like this early and you help support the show and you can find us on instagram at beneath the skin pod it's a a thank you very much from me and matt thank you so much um bye-bye bye